This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe any information within it as legal, tax, investment, financial or other advice. Nothing contained within is a recommendation, endorsement or offer to buy or sell any securities. The hosts and guests on the show may have positions in some of the companies discussed. Make sure to seek your own independent professional advice before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for Ten Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. We talk today with Paul Hart from Canary Capital. In 2014, Paul recapitalised Red River Resources. In the following four or five years, the company turned from a $400,000 shell into a company worth over $200 million. In the second half of the conversation, we talk about some of the broad investment themes and ideas that Paul's looking at at the moment. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Paul. No worries. I guess if we can get started, um, could you give us a bit of a background in what got you interested in the stock market and finance space? Uh, My interest in the stock market started when I was before I was 18, uh, that was when I made my first investment, and that interest came because my father was also interested in it. So, uh, as a result of that, um, the interest passed the genera- onto the next generation, and I, um, I started investing in shares. I love the excitement of it um, and the fact that anything can happen. Uh, so, yeah, I, that, that was when I bought my first, first shares, and over time, I've just increased um, my investments in the stock market and uh, today that is my sole focus. Was there a particular winner or a couple of things that you've done really well on and, and thought, geez, this is, this is really easy or, you know, this, this is really crap? Uh, look, you know, at times you can get, if you get a couple of wins, particularly if you're young in the game, um, I think arrogance can creep in, but you, the market will pretty quickly teach, teach you to stop being arrogant. I always say that the Investing in the stock market is actually the longest degree that you can ever do because it's ongoing. I learn stuff still every every uh, day now, and I make mistakes. And the market itself evolves due to changes such as uh, algorithmic trading bots. So you constantly have to evolve in order to be able to make money out of it. Um, early on in my very early investing days, there were a couple of big winners and there was one a company called Aquarius Platinum which I went into I was probably 23 24 when I went into it I only I only bought uh, 100,000 shares but I paid 12 cents for them and I sold them at about 80 90 cents uh, about a year later <clears throat> South African Platinum company um, and that was to put a deposit pay for a deposit on my house but the um, the stock actually went on to hit a high in the 30 plus dollar range. So it's a shame I didn't keep them all the way because it would have been about, uh, I think it was about 3 million bucks. So it sounds about 300 bags. So you, you were happy with 10 bags, but um, 300 was there. Oh, well, I didn't do too badly buying this house at the time anyway. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's a winner. And look, throughout my career, which is now 30 years old, I've probably had five to 10 I'd call them lottery wins where you just you end up getting 10, 10 plus bags but 
uh, obviously with big investments, it means a lot of money. So. Okay, and so the precursor to your financial mm-hmm. work, were you working in the finance sector or the commercial world? Yeah, I actually didn't work in the um, financial space. I was working for corporations. Um, my background is accounting marketing, but uh, but I was doing a lot of analytical work for for bigger companies, um, and that really that training obviously has helped me being a, be able to uh, analyse companies and try and pick holes in their strategies, work out with, whether what the likelihood is of them succeeding. Okay, so it sounds like you were able to bring some of those skills and experiences that you learned in the corporate world into the work that you do now. Correct, and like my last job in the corporate world was with Cadbury for 10 years and I spent um, probably half that time in their global strategy department where we were responsible for entering new markets and helping existing uh, markets refine their strategy. So again, I got a lot of training there. Okay, Paul, so that's an interesting one. So you were doing quite well, global strategy for Cadbury, you know, um, I would assume fairly well paid at the time. Um, was there a point where you thought, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this on the side, this trading stuff, I've got a bit of a unique skill set. Was that at some point you're going, you know what, I want to do this on my own? Good, good question. Um, as I said earlier, it's been in my blood since I was 18 and I just think it's so exciting. I, I'm, I remember the days when I used to go down at lunchtime to the um, stock exchange and watch the actual trading when they, in the day that they had um, chalkboards and chalkies and, and it was it just fascinated me. What pushed me over the line to try it permanently was Cadbury were relocating to Singapore for the, the um, regional headquarters and the global strategy uh, for where I was, was was relocating there. The fact, I went up there with the family, we decided it wasn't for us, so I left the company, took a redundancy package and that basically gave me the starting point where I could have a go at doing um, doing this full time. So a combination of investing and then I set up uh, an investor relations company soon after. Are you able to talk about what your um, sort of trading approach was historically and if it's changed, like, as much as you're willing to share on it and if it's changed at all over time? Are you able to sort of give us a bit of an overview of how you approach the market? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting point. I used to spend a lot of time trading. Um, in fact, in my busiest year, I think, I think my business turned over $20 million, but the average margin was, was down around the 1% to 2%. Now, it's, yes, it's a nice amount of money, 1% to 2% of $20 million, but it was stressful and a lot of hard work. And with the, the inventing of bots and algorithmic trading, that actually made short-term trading a lot harder. You can still do it, and the market's, the market's got to be bullish um, in a bull market for you to really make huge amounts of money out of trading. Um, anyway, so um, I actually shifted from doing lots of trading to now I virtually, I, I do very little. Now, now most of my investments are long-term, so I've evolved from this doing lots of turnover into mostly long-term holds, medium to long-term holds, and um, larger positions, larger position size. That's, that's interesting that you mentioned that. So obviously the market dynamics change, but I guess it probably is a necessity as well as your, your position sizing changes as well. You're not necessarily able to trade in the same way as your, the amount of money moving might change as well. That's correct. 
I've probably got about 50 companies that I'm, I'm invested in at the moment, and of the of the 40 to 50, it would be of the of those, there'd probably be oh, 10 to 15 that are actually really big positions. Okay, and so the other ones are more sort of starter positions, are they, or ones where you've got a, an interest to make sure you're following it, and you'll. Yep, and then if things go well, then I'll I'll um, you know I'll look to build the position further or hold uh you know hold the stock for a long longer period of time so it sounds like you're pretty um sector agnostic then in that case paul you'll look at um opportunities in lots of different spaces correct i look at opportunities in um in mining uh, so resources but particular areas um so in 2014 um when we started red river resources we picked zinc as being a potential um a, commodity that would have a strong performance in the next few years, and we were right. Um, so that's why we bought the the, the Halanga Zinc project at the bottom of the cycle. Paul, what was what just what made you back yourself in and go? You know what, Zinc's going to be the, the metal because your timing was was fantastic, and obviously you can take us through the the decision making and how you acquired it and all that sort of thing in a moment. But perhaps just uh, we just looked at the the guy that I set up Red River with is um, is a very smart guy. He's still still there actually, Donald Garner. He um, he and I just looked forward, looked at reports of the status of the zinc market. Um, stockpiles were falling dramatically, and prices were ridiculously low, like around the fifty sixty cents a pound, and that was not sustainable for companies to make money even even at a reasonable sort of grade. So it, it makes, and, and slowly supply was being taken out of the market and in the end, Glencore shut down a lot of mines. So in the end, it, it made sense that um, with a shortage of supply and very low prices uh, and the tightening in terms of the stockpiles, that it made sense that at some stage that the uh, market was going to turn around and it did went from 60 cents to $1.40 over the next few years. Well, that's quite a good segue there for us to talk about your time at Red River Resources. Do you want to start with the background about how you became involved in that company? Um, so what, what happened, um, when I set up, set up InSync Equity Services, which was the, um, handling uh, corporate advisory IR for, for companies, one of the companies that I actually ended up uh, providing services to was called New Age Exploration, and Donald was working there, so I got to know him through that process, and we became friends. And then uh, we 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 had said to ourselves, you know, one day we'll go out and we'll have a crack at this on our own when we can get our own company. And it just so happened that the bottom of the resources market, the exploration market, um, a company called Ironbark had owned 70% of Red River Resources, and they decided that they wanted to get out of it and get the cash to use for other purposes. So they were looking for a buyer, and we we knew um, we knew Michael Beer, who who was acting on the seller's behalf. So we put a bid in and were successful. So we bought 70% of the company for about 330 grand it was which was unbelievably cheap and uh it was at 0.8 of a cent in uh, back then what was the ev pool there when we bought it hundred thousand dollars that was extremely low i think it had 
from memory, 70 million shares or something like that on issue. Okay, so what were the steps and what did you guys do to recapitalise and sort of rebuild that company from the shell? What we did, we, we bought the shares off Iron Mountain at 0.73, I think it was. Um, that wasn't actually raising capital, that was just buying their shares. So I organised all the, the group of investors to buy those shares. And then the first raise that we did, uh, the first thing that we did when we had it, Donald and I were on the board, Almost the next day, we put out a new strategy direction for the company, and uh, probably you know a five-page announcement to the ASX detailing what we were going to do, and then we set about just doing what we said we were going to do. Uh, pretty quickly, we picked, we pegged some interesting exploration ground around um, St George's Mining in uh, near Laverton, WA, which was a pretty hot area at the time, and that to run in the share price up into the fives. So we, the first raise that we did, I think from memory, was about 400 grand at four and a half cents. So it was already a good uplift from the entry price of around 0.73 up to four and a half. People were already pretty happy with that. And then, uh, and then Donald had his eye on Philanger and we, um, a few months later, we, we started really pushing to, to acquire that project. Okay, I was going to ask about that. So the strategy that you put forward after recapitalising was really just an identification. You were going to look out and find a, you know, a meaningful project and bring it into the company. Was that the, the plan at the time you all came on board? Yeah, we, we said that at the time that we were looking for projects that were greenfield or brownfield in, in commodities, which we thought had a, a bright future in terms of appreciating prices. And, and, um, and that's what we did. So, Paul, on that, so, I mean, it's that's a really impressive short-term timeline because I know Joel and I are very interested in shells and a lot of people we know like shells as well. But it's, it's a really impressive turnaround from literally January to, you know, sort of June, July. Even after the raise at four and a half cents, you've, you've touched a, a high of about 24, 25 cents, probably even higher. What... What was it that Kigara or the, in the, the Thalanga asset that they had missed and you guys had picked up? Like you mentioned the zinc stockpiles. Um, do you, do, yeah, can you just shed some light? Is it, was it just very fortuitous timing? It was absolutely the bottom of the market. I mean, Red River, firstly, I think Red River, that's probably one of the best shell deals ever done on the ASX, I'd say, the cheapest. I, I, I don't know of any cheaper ones. Um, so, it wasn't going to be hard to, to see some appreciation when it had such a low market cap. Donald had his eye on Falanga. Um, he had been in talks with the liquidators as soon as we got on board Red River. Uh, but, but then it turned out that there was supposedly a Chinese buyer that was going to pick up the project and was happy to pay for it. So it all went cold for a couple of months. And then I was about to go on holidays over to Europe for a month. And the day before I left, to get on the plane, I just we I think we had a board meeting, and I just said, "What's happened to the Falanga?" And um, Paul looked at me and, and Cameron, who was the company secretary, and they said, "Well, we don't know." And I said, "Well, why don't we ring them and see what's happened?" So we did, and the sale had effectively fallen over, just fallen over, and we entered into immediate negotiations to buy it from them. And within within a couple of days, uh, we had an agreement. But uh, yeah, so we, and, and the next raise, the, the, the funds we raised to acquire the Langer were, the price was 10 cents. 
That's interesting. Do you think the um, that the Chinese bid that you had there had any impact on the way that you guys were able to negotiate that deal? Was the fact that one had fallen through already an advantage to you guys, perhaps? Or? Definitely. And and with the state of the market at the time, the liquidators were getting very nervous about having to hold the project for longer and longer. And remember, it was on care and maintenance, so it's costing them, you know, one to two million bucks a year just to keep the the project on care and maintenance, and they they didn't have any money coming in, so they they were really starting to get in a desperate and in a desperate hurry to get rid of the project, so uh, so they didn't have those costs uh, going out of out of their pockets, basically. That sounds like it could have been a blessing in disguise after all. Yep, and you know it was for me it was really satisfying because it it took us couple of years but it, it went back into production and it's making money and you know you've got a couple of hundred people in um, in and around Charters Towers that now have full-time jobs that weren't there previously. I think that's what makes it a really interesting story you've got a you know, shell effectively that turns into a producing company all in a space of four or five years. Did you have any background in um, company management or directorships before taking on the role? No involvement on being a, a director of a listed ASX company, um, only being directors of my private private investment company. So yeah, no, I had I didn't have much experience, but I guess over the years of investing, I did get to know companies very closely. I worked closely with them, like New Age Exploration. So you, you do get to have a lot of contact with board members. You see the workings, how things go on, and it, it effectively gives you training. I'm not sure. I'm not saying it was all smooth sailing and easy it wasn't with Red River but um, you know we, we certainly got there in the end and, and I learned a hell of a lot along the way and I'll probably do it again uh, in the future. That's interesting and just to dig into that a bit deeper then you mentioned that things you learned along the way was there anything obviously having had some of that exposure through the consulting work that you were doing but was there anything that really did catch you by surprise that you underestimated or were most surprised by once you were on the inside of a company rather than just being an observer from the outside? Yeah, one of the main things that I, I learnt um, along the way was you really got to choose very carefully who you work with um, and, and do a lot of background checks. You know, one of the brokers that we used, you know, to raise money that we were working with, we probably should have done a bit more work and we might have ended up in a, at a different place. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think you've got to be really careful to choose who you work with and do background checks and make sure that they're make sure they're like-minded. You know what I mean? And, and that, that so you're not going to end up in arguments with them. Basically, that was one of the challenges that we had. Cause we we did have a falling out along the way with, with um, one of the brokers that we were working with closely, and um, you know it, it caused a lot of stress and hassles at the time. But we in the end we worked through it and. Um, and made a success of it. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, the market um, and the share price tells the story. That's right. That's right. I mean, Red River went from a you know four hundred thousand market cap company when we bought it to its peak was about two two hundred million. It's currently still at around a hundred, but the zinc market's obviously come right off it. It's I still view it as a terrific success. And were there any other things from your um, consulting career that you think were really beneficial that you were able to bring on board? So that was more. Corporate communications, is that right, that you were working in? No, I was, I was in strategy, corporate strategy. So 
Um, absolutely. I mean, that first an announcement that Red River put out on the strategy, I spent a lot of time with Donald writing that, and, and that was drawing on a lot of my experience uh, in, at, at Cadbury in particular of um, helping companies develop, helping business units, sorry, develop their, their strategies and, you know, write business plans. And, and um, so, yeah, mo most definitely a lot of the experience um, has, has helped me along the way. Okay, so when did you finish up with Red River and what was um, on the cards next? In early 2017, Red River was in production. I'd, I'd been there for the whole journey since the start of 2014, and um, and I just figured this company's made it. It's, it's in production. There's not really much more that I can necessarily add to this, so it was time for me to, to move on, uh, which I did. And pretty soon after, in May 2017, we started Canary Capital. Uh, there were three of us three directors, um, and it, that, that was just the timing. Uh, but Canary Capital, everything that I've learned along the way, I've taken along with me in terms of the philosophies and, and, and we're just applying it. Okay, and what does Canary Capital do? So Canary is sort of a, a, it's a boutique um, corporate advisory slash broking company. We, we cover the, we're based in the eastern states of Australia. Our head office is in Sydney. I obviously live in Melbourne, so I'm the Melbourne part of Canary Capital, but um, we, we really just pride ourselves on, on finding outstanding investment opportunities for our clients in, uh, in this micro and small cap space. Um, and it can range from early seed stage opportunities uh, right through to IPO listings as well as, you know, obviously backing companies that are already listing or already listed on the market and um, and assisting them in, you know, funding and, and and growing. We don't back that many companies. We're very selective in what we do, but when we do it, we do it with conviction and, and there won't be a company that we invest in that we put our clients in unless our money's invested. So if it's not good enough for our money, it's certainly not good enough for our clients. So we'll always invest alongside them. Yeah, terrific. Paul, is there any sectors or any thematics that you are looking at very closely at Canary or think that um, the future looks very exciting? Yeah, yeah. So what we do, do we, we try and look three, five years out and work out what sectors we think are going to outperform the, the market in terms of the, the ASX the small odds, and in doing that, and we're always looking for trends, right? So we, we are constantly going through reading articles, looking for, for longer term trends, trying to identify things which are going to become um, important, and that drives our, our identification of sectors which we tend to focus on. So at the moment, we've got, um, we've got six sectors which we're, or six areas where we're particularly interested in. Cyber security is, is the first one. So we, a few years ago, we saw the trend in the number of attacks that were happening on companies. So we thought at the, at the time, we thought it's going to be really important, become really important for companies to protect themselves and, and um, their data. That's cyber security. Um, drone technology. So we think that drones, the drone, sector is going to grow dramatically and impact people in many ways. I mean, if you think about 
logistics, parcel delivery. We see that that's going to become an area where a lot of drones are used. And in fact, it's being trialled, I think, in Canberra at the moment, where Amazon are using drones to deliver packages. Uh, biotechnology, uh, two, two areas in that area, in that sector that we focus on. The first one is get new next generation treatments for chronic diseases. We're particularly interested in precision medicine, which is going to become much more important. And by precision medicine, I mean that when, when people are identified as having a particular form of cancer, there'll be a whole raft of different drugs available to, to treat that cancer. However, the, <clears throat> the selection of the, the drug most appropriate for, the, for that particular person and that particular strain of cancer they have will be uh, will become more important in terms of achieving the best result for patients. The second area in, in uh, biotech is, is medicines. We're looking at medicines, supplements, treatments, which will improve the quality of life healthier for longer and functioning, keeping their bodies function normally for longer so they can effectively enjoy and, and do a lot of things into their 70s, which previously they were only able to do in their 60s. Um, AgTech. So we're interested in there that obviously the number of people on the planet has, has ballooned in the last couple of decades. We've got to feed everyone. So, so um, we're interested in technology that's going to see um, crop yields increase, reducing the you know, amount of disease, trying to reduce the risks posed by the outside environment. Certain minerals and resources, as you guys, would, would, as we were talking about earlier, we liked zinc in 2014. We're a little less bullish on zinc now, but, but there's other areas where we see um, particular opportunities in. So in this day and age where governments are printing money all the time, um, you know, the Ponzi scheme, Ponzi currencies, we, we see gold and silver appreciating significantly over the coming years. We're starting to see that happen now. Um, particularly, we see silver going up really strongly. The gold-silver ratio at the moment is up, up at about, that's in the 90s. Now, traditionally, that's been a lot lower. And if you look over the long term, that's been down at around you know, 10 to 15 times. Don't think it's going to get down that low, but, but we think that when gold gets too expensive, silver almost becomes the poor man's gold. So we see uh, silver prices outperforming gold strongly. and if you look at the last month, that's exactly what's starting to occur. So gold's, gold's sure, gold's gone from 1300 to 1500 Silver's actually gone from um, $14 up to about 1850 So percentage-wise in the last month, silver's been outperforming gold. And how do you look at benefiting from that um, theme, if you've caught it correctly? Is that like investing in resource companies that explore or produce that, that commodity? Yeah, two things. We, we will identify companies in the sectors um, in those sectors which have exposure to gold and silver uh, listed companies, so we keep an eye out on uh, on results. We'll go and we'll go and do a re review of all projects and all companies in the space and try and identify projects which we think are, are economic and can be profitable in the current market. Um, and the second second thing that we will do, we'll go and look for projects, individual projects that we can pick up and and you know, privately and look to combine them in, and create a new company uh, down the track. And that might be something that, as I said earlier, I might be 
join another company and, and, and board and start doing Red River Mark II and that's the sort of thing that we would look to do there. And so that was silver and gold. Was there um, other commodities that you were looking at? Um, so copper in resources, copper we're bullish on long term. Uh, we see shortages coming in the next few years. Uh, the electric vehicle boom that's happening at the moment is going to require a lot of copper. I mean, each copper car, you know, needs 30 kgs of, uh, sorry, each electric car needs 30 kgs of copper. So, um, but we see the demand really outstripping supply and there will be a shortage in a few years. Um, uranium is another area which, which we like because a lot of uh, mines at the moment just can't make money at $25. In fact, they can't make money at prices less than 50 So prices have been low for so long that, that we we see them going up. And one of the reasons why they've been low is because there's been a lot of supply coming from uh, weapons, decommissioning of weapons. That, that supply source is finishing now. So we see, <coughs> we see um, uranium prices picking up. And the last area which... Uh, which has really just come on to our, we just added it to our sort of strategic sectors is, is sustainability, which is all about the environment. And, and as you guys know, it's become, it's become a really hot, hot area in terms of a lot of people are talking about it, the environment, how we're going to keep the earth in reasonable shape to hand over to the next generation. So we're looking at projects for recycling, using, using um, the resources we've got more efficiently, the space we think that is going to become more important and you've got a lot of funds there, ethical funds, which are looking for, for those sort of opportunities. So, Okay, so that's, but yeah, so your approach is basically to do a sector analysis first and then identify opportunities that fit within those. Our approach is identify trends, broad trends, which then leads us to sectors, which then leads us to identifying opportunities. Okay, and just to dig into that then, so what sort of process do you use to evaluate individual opportunities within a given sector or theme that you've chosen? We, we have a checklist. We have a short checklist and then a long checklist, DD, or it's a DD checklist. So if we're, if we're introduced to a company or we meet with a company, we'll actually work through that checklist, the short one, and just tick off things. And, and if it passes that and we still like it, then we'll do more detailed DD on it before really backing it. Um, and, and the DD all circles around that, what I said earlier, the clear business strategy, the, 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 the people that are behind the company, are they successful? The, is the business model scalable? Do they have IP and are there significant barriers to entry? And, and you know, is it, is it, you know, is the current price of the company um, low enough that we see significant capital appreciation so terrific paul so just a couple of things to finish off um where can investors or sophisticated investors get in touch with you and canary capital and um the elusive 10 bagger yeah so we have a website www.canarycapital.com.au uh if, if people are interested in talking in more detail about what we do asking questions they can ring me uh, or they can email me. My email is uh, phart at canarycapital.com.au. Um, sandbaggers, please. Of the ones that, I'm, that, that we're looking at very closely at the moment, um, I see, I think, Mobilicom, MOB, at, at $0.08 cents 
it's around the the current prices around eighteenth. I think that they're become a, going to become a, a leader in the global drone business. Um, they've already got agreements with Unique, which is the second largest builder of drones in the world. They've just well, they're just launching their first commercial drone together, and Unique is owned I think fifty percent by Google. Airbus have have just signed a recently signed a, co- a collaboration agreement with them. Um, as well as I think over half of the drone manufacturers in the world now have agreements with Mobilicom to use their technology. Um, so, and, and then there's a second part to that business, which is uh, creating communi- mobile communication, secure, really important for um, emergency services, uh, big events. So Mobilicom definitely one which I would be watching very carefully. I should disclose there that I do hold some Mobilicom shares myself and have done for a few years, so I'll certainly be very happy if your prediction comes true. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Paul. It's a really interesting story with Red River and um, some interesting thoughts and things for people to go and explore themselves. really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.